Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Errol Yabake, and this week I'm nervous because it's my first time hosting News and Brews without Mike Heslin. Uh, luckily, my dear friend Aaron Polish was there to listen to my ranting on Ukraine and answer all of my questions about Ebola, COVID, and all sorts of other fun things that can kill us. We bounced from South Sudan to Sierra Leone to Somalia to Boston and Kiev and beyond in this conversation. This was a really fun one for me, honestly. Erin's good people, but she's also had an incredible career so far and uh, by the looks of it is just getting started. Hi, Erin. Hi, Errol. It's good to see you. It's really you're, nice to see you. You're not Mike Heslin, uh, no. for, for people listening. Your name is Erin Polish. And we are old friends. Can we say that? We are longtime friends. How about we're not old? Okay, that's fair. I feel like longtime friends makes me feel better about sure. just turning 40 a couple of weeks ago. It's true. I do. I have very fond memories of your, it must have been your 30th birthday on the Nile 10 years ago on that <laughs> island. Swimming on the island in the Nile. Yes. That was very ill-advised. That's actually really funny. We we rented a jet ski, I feel like. I think that. we rented two and one of them broke and <laughs> <laughs> probably right. sailed down the Nile never to be seen again. But listen, let me introduce you first and then I want to hear about what you're drinking and then we want to um, jump into the news. I'm really, really grateful that you took the time to to do this. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing all your lukewarm takes. We will get to that in a second. But so Aaron Polish, in addition to having being a distinguished visitor at my 30th birthday party at in Juba on the Nile. We basically met just before South Sudanese independence, uh, which happened on July 9th, uh, 2011, if I'm getting my dates correctly. And mm-hmm. uh, you showed up in Juba earlier that year. So this is sort of immediately post-referendum for independence, but pre-independence itself there was this sort of six month period of euphoria that you, you showed up. Um, and I had only been there a little while. My then girlfriend, now wife had been there for longer than me, but somehow we got to know each other, but professionally you were working, I believe for management sciences for health MSH at that point, when you first arrived, you were doing public health work. And then you went on to be part of the NGO forum coordinating public health stuff. The health forum, which was separate than the NGO forum, but yeah, same thing. There are so many coordinating (laughs) mechanisms in Juba, which is probably a sign that there's too many NGOs in Juba. But um, nevertheless, you were with the public health forum um, leading those coordination efforts. But unlike me, you actually stuck it out much longer and you were there when fighting broke out uh, in December 2013. Shortly after that, you were like, peace out, guys. I, I got to go. I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. And so, of course, you went to work on Ebola in Sierra Leone. Sure. I think with... I went to your wedding in between that. That's fair. You did go to our. Yeah, you. it was it was supposed to be six months off of like going to weddings and meeting babies. And instead, I went to your wedding and a couple of other places, I think, and then went to Sierra Leone. Well, those that understand transportation in, in sub-Saharan Africa will understand that you probably needed to go via Istanbul anyways to get to Sierra Leone so you know makes, sure. makes total sense yeah. so you worked I think with Goal an Irish NGO for a little while and then worked for IRC the International Rescue Committee which for those that don't know 
is one of the oldest, largest, and most famous NGOs in the world. Um, so it was only appropriate that Erin Polish uh, finished out her time there. And of course, you wanted another break after battling Ebola in West Africa. And so you moved back to the Boston area just in time to be working for the Boston Public Health Commission uh, in early 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So you were working for the Boston Public Health Commission, which was really on the front lines of of all things COVID in, in that area. So now you're at Partners in Health, which we will talk about in a little bit. It's an NGO that's a world-renowned public health NGO. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say you're probably doing amazing things every day, continuing to do them at your work at PIH. So I'm really grateful that you're here. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm excited to be here, and I'm so excited to say that I'm a longtime listener, first-time podcast co-host. So. <laughs> For those that don't know, a, a good portion of our listenership comes from this one WhatsApp group. Um, shout out to the Jubin diaspora. We've had other guests from that WhatsApp group on here, but what are you drinking tonight, Aaron? Are you, do you have a brew with you? Oh, I do. It's not I'm a requirement. But I do. I was prepared. It's actually not the one I wanted to have. But it's the okay. one that I could find today uh, when I <laughs> got back to Boston. So it's my local brewery. It's the uh, Distraction Brewing. Shout out to Boston, Massachusetts and Rosendale specifically. It's their Hoppily Distracted New England IPA because I am in Boston. So, of course, it's a New England IPA. Yeah, and it's really delicious. They have the one I wanted to drink because they have a jalapeno which is a Ooh. jalapeno pale ale. It's delicious. And over, th- or over uh, Halloween, rather, they made a ghost pepper jalapeno ale. Anyways, which Ooh. is amazing. So at some point, if I come down to DC, I'll bring you some because you seem intrigued. Yes, please. Um, I do like the spicy infused uh, beverages. Also, I feel like hoppily distracted describes me for like... <laughs> A lot of the time. <laughs> um, yeah, same, same. I, I'm drinking. I also didn't get the beverage that I wanted. Um, so that seems to be a theme. Oh, you have a fancy glass too, man. You were just one oh, yeah. me. It says bikes and brews. I don't know where it's from. It's a gift from my sister. Fantastic. <laughs> Which means it's probably from Chicago. So I wanted, we're going to talk about Ukraine in a second because of course we are. And so I legit called around to like three local liquor stores and I was like, what alcoholic beverages do you have that are from Ukraine? And this one guy, two, two people told me to just like buzz off and and one guy shout out to Metro wine and spirits, like walked around actually trying to find something. And he thought he found something. He thought he found like a, um, a vodka or something. And he got really excited and he came back and he was like, Oh, this is from Poland. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. So I, I've, you know, because I do this with Mike every week, I kind of generally stockpile, like, if, if I don't actually get the beer that I want, here's a really good one. And so this is a Manor Hill Brewing. It's a dark Saison. Uh, it's Ooh. actually aged in port barrels. Um, and it's from Ellicott City, Maryland. And it's called the Grain Reaper which given Ukraine's really important role in the global grain trade, I felt like was the most appropriate of my backup beers in the fridge. I really support the like thought and effort that you put into that. Mine was driven by (laughs) what do I want to drink tonight? And yours was like based in geopolitics. I mean, I try. 
I yeah, try. I, right. do, I do co-host a podcast called News and Brews, so that's um, true. That's true. Putting in putting in some effort every once in a while is is worth it. But how about we get into the first round and actually enjoy these beers? We haven't recorded an episode here in News and Brews in a couple of weeks, and even when we did record, I feel like this entire year has kind of been like, is this finally the week that we're not going to talk about Ukraine? Because, you know, maybe Putin backed off or because the intel that the Biden administration was releasing was wrong or because there isn't actually, you know, like a war on European soil or something like that. And and yet here we are. Big sigh. I'm guessing that most of our listeners are up to speed on much of this. So I thought um, I would just kind of run down what some of the highlights uh, or, or, as it were, lowlights have been for the last couple of days. Starting with, did you see the CNN reporter like put on his flak jacket and helmet on Thursday night, like on live TV? No. So my Twitter and and text messages and stuff started blowing up on Thursday evening last week. And so immediately I turned on CNN and which I never watch TV anymore, but I turned it on and there's this guy who's on a rooftop. It's very early on Friday morning and he's on this rooftop and he like hears an explosion in the background and he's kind of like looking around. You see like off camera, someone hands him a flak jacket and a helmet. And so he's like in real time, like putting out sort of cameras over, of course, like super zoomed in on him. And it was juxtaposed with this like other CNN reporter whose name is escaping me. Both of them are who is in another part of, I think she was even in like Eastern Ukraine or something. And there were definitely bombs going off in the background and she was just standing there. She was like, it's, it's all good. There's like bombs back there. It's fine. But that guy, I think, quickly made the rounds in, uh, in sort of war Twitter, which seems to be a lot of my Twitter these days. But so, so rapid fire. And then I'd love to hear, Aaron, sort of what you're following on, on this as well. I know it's not your, your daily beat necessarily, but you, I'm sure, pay attention to the news like we all do. So Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine last Thursday completely unprovoked, pretty much exactly as President Biden warned he, us he would. Um, it was a ground and air assault conducted under false pretenses from uh, the north, east, and the south, although there were attacks pretty much all over the country. So once the invasion started, former Dancing with the Stars contestant turned Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, has proven to be quite the adept selfie video taker and defensive military tactician. Uh, He happens to be enemy number one on Putin's hit list. He's also emerged as an unlikely global hero after many questioned his ability to even lead Ukraine just a few weeks ago. He's really become kind of a social media star, uh, and he's gotten lots of attention from global leaders. And um, there's been a couple of very harrowing kind of interviews or selfie videos that he's taken. It's, It's definitely worth Googling. So where do things stand now? It's, you know, we had a full weekend. It's been a few days. Uh, Ukraine, I would say, is currently winning the global information war, as evidenced uh, by pretty much unanimous global condemnation with caveat. There are China and India-sized exceptions to that global condemnation, which we can talk about. But one data point here on the on the global information war is that Putin's, you know, quote unquote reasons for invasion are like not found anywhere in the mainstream. 
right? Like, and even where they are, nobody's believing. It's like Nazis and, you know, genocide and NATO's going to bomb Moscow and like all this other shit. And like, nobody buys, he's like, nobody buys it. He's diabolical. He's crazy. And so far he's turned out to be quite the loser. So there's an actual war going on in addition to a information war. And quite frankly, to the surprise of many, I would say many, even in the sort of foreign policy, national security community that, that follow Russia very closely, it's been a total mess. Like it's been a disorganized mess. It's partly because they just didn't have their shit together tactically, but I think also they underestimated the resistance that they were going to face and the degree to which that resistance was going to be able to be supported and armed through the Western parts of, of the country. So just a couple quick points on this. So Ukraine's neighbors, ex- except Belarus, have really opened their doors and there's already over 500,000 refugees, a number which really grows by the hour. Uh, doesn't include men. Men between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave. They bring voluntold to stay home and fight. And as I mentioned, weapon systems, guns, ammunition, food, aid, et cetera, flowing in from the Ukraine's Western borders. This weekend, there were a whole host of additional sanctions. So there's been sort of a sanctions thing that's been going on for a while, but there was a whole host of new ones uh, this weekend, including removing several really important Russian banks from the SWIFT system, which is like a really pivotal global financial system and the freezing of at least 50% of Russia's national reserves that are held outside of of Russia. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, this pretty much meant that the Russian ruble collapsed and the broader economy is on super shaky ground. It hasn't impacted the energy sector so much, though when the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund gives you the finger and even Swiss banks are like, nah, dude, you can't have your money, you know you've done something wrong. It doesn't seem great. It's my hot take on that one. Doesn't seem great. <laughs> Doesn't seem great. Um, yeah. What are your hot takes? So what have you been following with this? I mean, well, so you said that this is not my area of expertise to the point where I think I was telling you this morning I had to Google because I'm going to Austria in a couple of weeks, who was allied with USSR during the Cold War. Ooh, because, do tell. Well, because somebody was like, is Russia going to invade Austria next when you go to visit? And I was like, I, I truly don't think so, but I also don't know. Uh, so that's that's my level of familiarity with the, this section of the world. Um, you know the difference between Austria and Australia, right? Yes, okay. I think, right? One is <laughs> landlocked, one has yes. got a lot of ocean around it. But a lot of land still. But a lot of land and a kangaroos. <laughs> and that's kangaroos. What, yeah, yeah. Yes, so, wallabies. So other than that, just in terms of reading the news and hearing about stuff happening over the last week, it's been interesting to hear people's takes. And I thought, sorry, I listen to other podcasts sometimes. Um, <gasps> I know it's upsetting, but one of the other podcasts I was listening to this morning actually was talking about, you know, that the options aren't total war and nothing. Like there's a lot mm. of in between. And I think that that's, it, you know, to the U.S. and to the world's sort of point of view, they've they've been looking at what those options are. And I think sanctions and limiting airspace and things like that, overall finger wagging, you know, is a big one just in general. But I think one of the things that just from, you know, my experience with Sudan, South Sudan and other places is that sanctions tend to be not always super effective. But I think Mm. some of these measures that you were talking about in terms of like the banks and maybe airspace and things like that are 
potentially a little bit, but I think the question is how effective are they going to be? What is their sort of overall impact that they can have realistically? But I think also that seems to go to what is Putin's end game? Like who knows? <laughs> who knows at this point? Where what what does he want? Uh, where's he going to stop? So I, yeah, I, I think sort of mulling over all of those thoughts that I just truly do not know the answers to is, is my hot takes at these moments. Yeah. And I think that last point is what actually really terrifies me about this situation. We've talked about how Putin is an unstable human on this podcast before, and that's not a particularly hot take. That's like common knowledge. I think he's probably pretty embarrassed at this point and like really diabolical bad people being embarrassed can lead to even worse outcomes. I mean, as I mentioned that his military, his mighty, mighty military and hundreds of thousands of troops have not fared well against like the Russian programmers who picked up an AK yesterday and like figured out. So it's like, he's probably embarrassed by that. He's embarrassed by the images of the tanks, you know, running out of fuel on the side of the road. I think that people like that that are unstable are, are scary when it gets to this point. And so I think there's a couple of things that could happen, which, which really scare me. One is that there could be lots more indiscriminate and frequent bombings in civilian neighborhoods. So like a lot of the attacks have been centered on like airports and airfields and military installations. And there's like, even today we're recording on Tuesday, March 1st, like there's an uptick in kind of missiles landing in, in civilian neighborhoods and hitting apartments and things like that. And I think that'll, that could go up um, to try to really break the morale of the, of the Ukrainians. You know, he's escalated the nuclear threat. Um, he's put all of his nuclear assets on high alert, which to, to President Biden's credit, he didn't match. Like there wasn't like a, you know, he sort of called his bluff and was like, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to you on this because we're not going to get in like a, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis style like escalation here. Which um, like counterpoint to that, can you imagine if Trump was still in office right now, like the level that we would be at at this point. I was thinking about that this morning and how terrifying that would be. I was trying to avoid mention of Trump and like he and Tucker Carlson have basically just been like Putin apologists through this whole thing and like taking Putin's side over Biden's side. And it's just like, it's really terrifying. Back to sort of where this could go out of Putin's embarrassment. I there's there's evidence of lots more Russian troops and heavy machinery sort of going into Ukraine. There's evidence that they want to try to like encircle Kyiv to try to cut off supply lines and, oh, by the way, escape routes, which is really dangerous. So I'm certainly thinking about and hoping the best for Ukrainian civilians that that are there um, and grateful that the you know neighbors are opening up their doors, at least for now. Yeah. I mean, I, I was looking stuff this morning in terms of just, I, I, as I'm sure you also get through your international connections of just like all of the people that we know who are preparing either to deploy for response or getting requests to respond and things like that. So just reading a little bit more about what was happening. And I mean, I think what it's now at least up to half a million people who have re, who have gone over borders to the neighboring countries, most yep. of them you know, not to Belarus and Russia, but to other places and expectations that it could likely reach up to like 4 million people, which is, again, I mean, I I think realistic, not surprising, but, you know, like 
as a somebody who has worked in humanitarian response, you know, my immediate thoughts go to who's providing care for them, what infrastructure is being set up, what documents, things like that, who's being left out of the planning for that, you know, people who have mobility issues or things like all the things that you have to think of when you're thinking of a humanitarian crisis, which is happening both within a country, but then also on all of the borders as well. And just, yeah, the, the massive efforts that are going into that right now to try to deal with a burgeoning crisis that just really does just didn't have to happen. Yeah. I, I looked on our analytics, our podcast analytics, and turns out that less than 1% of our viewers are in Russia, which means greater than zero listeners are in Russia. And I'm going to just assume that that is someone in Putin's close orbit <laughs> is listening to this. So palace coup just get rid of Vladimir Putin and this thing. Let's, let's get these civilians back home and safe. Yeah, it'll all be fine then. So I want to move on to, um, we don't normally do obituaries here on News and Brews, but honestly, we don't usually do anything because it's our show and we can just kind of do whatever the heck we want. And so uh, I have to say at least one of the, co-hosts on this, and I'd venture to guess even one guest host, uh, was profoundly professionally impacted by Dr. Paul Farmer and thus profoundly saddened by his sudden passing at the age of 62 last week. He was in Rwanda, I, I believe it was last Monday when he passed away, a place that along with Haiti was basically a second home to him and his family for the better part of three, maybe even four decades. He was the author of 12 books. He was the subject of a 2017 documentary called uh, Bending the Ark. He was the recipient of the $1 million uh, Berggren Prize in 2020. And according to his New York Times obituary, he had a quote unquote, contagious enthusiasm and considerable nerve, which everybody that I have known who knows Paul would probably agree with that. The other fun tidbit of this, not fun, it's an obituary. Why am I saying fun? Apparently in this New York Times piece, apparently it was, it was talking about uh, he spent a lot of his youth living in Florida with his parents and five siblings on a converted school bus. I, I'm sure that's like part of partners in health lore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he, in his own words, apparently said that gave him a very compliant GI system. Other, other point on this, they were, that family was apparently way ahead of their time with the school bus to RV conversion, which is like such the COVID thing to do. I feel like. Yeah. They would have been super in touch with 2020 and 2021. Yeah. And like bunk beds in the, I mean, it's just like living the dream uh, in Florida. So I, I'm sure like you and others, I first came across him in 2003. I was in college at the time and an author named Tracy Kidder wrote a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains about Paul Farmer. Public health was never really going to be my like viable career path. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> let's be real. Um, but, but I think it, it resonated with me because his, you know, intense focus on patient well-being and on seeing people as people, right? And like people that he wanted to keep in touch with. He was like a godparent to like a hundred different Haitian kids. And I mean, just really, just truly like non-surface level connections. Um, he saw people as not just like beneficiaries of humanitarian and development assistance, but like, you know, 
people. And so I feel like that had a big impact on me. But it's worth pointing out, Aaron, that you now work for Partners in Health, as I mentioned, and that was an organization that he helped create um, back in the early or maybe it was mid uh, 1980s. And the, the details of that are all chronicled in that Mountains Beyond Mountains book. But, you know, you didn't always work there. So you probably knew of him before because you are actually in public health. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think similar to you is that my first introduction to him was reading Mountains Beyond Mountains back in, gosh, whenever it was that I read it. And I just remember being so inspired and, and just, yeah, really motivated because I think that it speaks to a lot of, I, as somebody who grew up going to Jesuit, you know, high school and Jesuit college, he was schooled in the thought of liberation theology. And that comes through, I think, with the, sort of everything that he did and his ethos and, and how he approached just health equity overall. Um, and Tracy Ketter does a really great job in the book of, of chronicling it. So I was incredibly inspired by him as a, as a young <laughs> college and probably grad student um you know and i think that over the years have become slightly more jaded and cynical and pragmatic as we all do um but i think it's been one of the really lovely things about working for partners in health is that like that ethos and sort of his how he views the world and how he viewed health equity even though he's not like the president or the ceo of partners in health he's he's still sort of a chief strategist for it like it still just permeates the entire institution and and really i think drives a lot of people's passions for why they got into this work and why they stay in why they stay in it when things are really hard and yeah. when public health like isn't easy so and it comes with all these choices so I, I think one of the stories that somebody was telling at some point in the last week, I don't remember where I heard it, you know, is that he he was confronted at one point in medical school with this sort of conundrum of, you know, if you are presented in a, it might have even been within the context of Haiti and, and building a hospital there, you know, if you're presented funding and you could either build a NICU or you could build a prenatal care unit what would you do? And it's supposed to be this like, you know, deep philosophical mm -hmm. question that you have to answer as a, well, you know, preventative care would be great, but then what happens to the babies who are really sick, who need care? And his response was, that's just terrible. You should build both. If you need both, you should build both. Um, which again, I think is like a really beautiful way to look at the world, even if it's not necessarily always something that's realistic that we can do is that he would always push people to think about that more. Um, and I think like in, in the framing of global health, like he really helped shape the, just the overall narrative around health equity, just in general and in recent decades. And he was extremely influential in expanding TB treatment and HIV treatment. Like, I think that you can sort of draw a pretty direct line from him and Jim Kin to PEPFAR and the funding that happened to support global AIDS work in the 90s and still supports global AIDS work. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's been a really interesting week to hear a lot of people's memories of him, both personal, but then also just, I think a lot of people's like, just retellings of exactly what we're telling. You know, I, I read this book when I was young and it inspired me to, to look at the world in a different way and to think that things were different and that they could be possible. So yeah, I think, I think it's been a pretty sad week for everybody, both in partners and health, I know, but also I think like in the public health world, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and just be like, wow, this one kind of hurts. <laughs> like, yeah. even if it's, you know, I, I think that nobody lives up to the global hype that surrounds them. Like 
nobody is actually as good as they seem in like a book but at the same time like the i the actual person versus like the inspiration that they that person sort of inspires throughout the world is is yeah it is a little bit of a different game so sad sad week you mentioned the sort of cynicism over over the course of your career and uh, listeners couldn't see, but I was doing a bit of head nodding. You know, we just, (laughs) we just talked about Ukraine and like how we seem to be going backwards in time, not just in Ukraine, but, but in so many ways. And it's remarkable to me how if that happened with Paul Farmer, he never showed it. Like he had this like relentless optimism and pursuit of a better world that I think is not pragmatic in so many ways and not practical in so many ways. And that's kind of what made it beautiful in, yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. It was, and, and ultimately, I think when he first got into the game, that's what made it disruptive. You know, he was not, he was not okay with just, let's give out medicine to people and let them be healthy. He wanted to think about things like systems and infrastructure. And so I was gonna ask you actually, one of his books is about West, uh, West Africa and Ebola. I think he wrote it in 2014, around when you were there. And so, you know, is that something that you saw and witnessed as well, sort of in responding to Ebola? He writes about sort of inequality and inequities being a big part of how it was hard to contain that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, I don't know if you've read the book, but just generally from your like time in Sierra Leone or or Salon, as the cool kids say. (laughs) I haven't read the book, partly because it's one of those things where I can't read anything yeah. about Ebola because it was just too like I was too close to it for so long so there's actually a book that yeah it was yeah I, I know people who have written books and I can't read them so uh, well, maybe that, one day you'll write one maybe maybe someday I'll, I'll write one I started writing one about Juba but that's a different story but I mean I think that in West Africa right during the Ebola outbreak there were I, I actually don't remember the total number of deaths now but it was I think in, in Sierra Leone, and it's totally an undercount, I think it was close to about 20,000. Liberia and Guinea were also far undercounted. And then if you look at the number of cases that there were in, sorry, that's, I think that was cases, not deaths. But anyways, but if you look at the number of deaths that there were in cases that were identified in West Africa, I mean, it had a case fatality rate of, of fairly high. And I think the official numbers are again artificially low, but it, you know it's somewhere between forty and sixty percent is the case fatality rate. Versus, if you look at the case fatality rate for cases that got taken out of the country or that were diagnosed mm. in the U.S., I mean the case fatality rate was essentially zero. Zero. There, there might have been one person who passed away in Spain, if I remember, but I mean it was. The, the difference in treatment, if you can put somebody on all of the life-saving equipment, if you can get them into dialysis, if you can actually like just support them as they're going through this versus if they're sitting in a tent in the middle of rural Sierra Leone, I mean, that's, you can't look at that and say that there's health equity in that. But the flip side of that is that that comes from just decades and centuries almost of underdevelopment and under you know, resourcing of different locations and like intentionally doing so, right? We, we put a lot of effort and time into funding and resourcing certain parts of the world and certain places and not so much into other parts and then get surprised at the consequences of it. I don't think that there's a person who works in public health or works in emergency global health who can look at the world and not say there's a deeply, deeply, deeply unequal 
an equitable system in place across everything that has vast consequences. And hey, we've seen a lot of that in COVID, even in our own country. So, you know, it, it's just something that I think is, yeah, it, it, it's, I admire, again, the stories about Paul Farmer and to your point of like, he, he just did not seem to have the capacity to be cynical about things or to get downtrodden about things. Um, I think even one of our coworkers who we were having a couple of, you know, uh, uh, company or not company, organization-wide sessions of like memorials of Paul Farmer over the last week, which, you know, as somebody who never met him, like I went to them and was really touched by a lot of the retellings, both by people who knew him personally and and people who didn't. And somebody uh, was telling a story about how they were, doing some health programming right on the border between two countries not permission to, to you know share this person's story so I'll keep it vague but like basically they were on this border and there was a need on the other side of the border and the staff member was like okay well you know I just wish that we could get over there and Paul Farmer's response was we'll just take the medicines there and he's like but it's a different country like I can't just take medicines over the border and Paul was like borders are a man-made like artificiality of course you can just take the medicines over there and I think that that's sort of like a refreshing thing to think about when we're thinking about like all of the the barriers that come up in public health is that like yeah a lot of what we a lot of the barriers that we have in the world are sort of man-made artificialities and if we could sort of dream up a way to make it be like there's a way that we could really easily talk you know, solve a lot of our health inequities and our, our health issues that we have. But instead, we have put in place a lot of, you know, free market capitalist things that get in our way. We've put in a lot of geopolitics that get in our way and, and everything else. And, and so it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Well said. It reminds me of, um, I accidentally went to Somalia once. Um, <laughs> That that sounds like something you do. (laughs) Because we were looking at, it was during the the drought in 2011 and my NGO was doing water projects and, you know, building wells and and digging wells and doing other stuff. And, and I was, I wanted to go see some of the, the field projects. And so the driver took me out and my phone started pinging. Like I started to get cell service, which is like the telltale sign that you have left Ethiopia and you are now in Somalia. (laughs) And, and so I asked the driver and, and he was like, Oh yeah, Somalia started like a town over. And I was like, why are we still going? And he was like, well, cause you know, the well's over here. And I kind of was like, so I asked the program officer, like, why is the well here and not back in Gode Zone in, in Ethiopia? And he was like, well, this is where it was needed. And I was kind of like, okay, great. <laughs> I'll cover for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think we ever had quite that much on uh, in Ebola, but we did have definitely, we worked up in the district in Cambia doing some surveillance stuff. And again, like borders mean nothing unless you're like going through an actual like road with a border crossing so people cross back and forth all the time and we had to have uh, some discussions at one point about why our surveillance teams needed sat phones (laughs) and they were like but why and we were like because you know sometimes they might be really far out there and also sometimes they might be crossing borders and they were like they're not allowed to cross borders (laughs) we're like well let's not admit that they're crossing borders they just need sat phones. They just need sat phones. It's fine. Bad cell service. Yeah. 
Well, let's get into our main story because I, I wanna I wanna pick your brain on all things COVID. Oh, good. You, you mentioned COVID actually when you were talking about the health inequities of Ebola, um, and so I, I have all these questions about like where in your analysis where do we sit right now in, in COVID and like where are we going? But but rewind the the clock a little bit to 2020 and when this was first happening and you were in Boston, like, tell us some good stories of, oh, no. <laughs> of what, what was going on and what the big challenges were. What were you most worried about? Oh, geez. All of it. You're just trying to give me like PTS at this point, like, and harken back to those dark With days like all the things you're going to, you're going to write a book about <laughs> Ebola and then you're going to go to South Boston and be like, Hey guys, remember? Well, so I was working not only for the Boston Public Health Commission, but I was working their Office of Public Health Preparedness. It's specifically set up to deal with public health emergencies and medical emergencies in the city of Boston. Yeah, March of 2020. I mean, it, to be fair, it, it, you know, I think most public health departments were paying attention to this before March. And Boston had one of the first cases. I think our first case was on January 30th. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, th- I think we had like the eighth or ninth case that was documented in the U.S. One of the crazy things, right, was that back in February of 2020, you couldn't get tested anywhere. So the state mm. of Boston, or the state of Boston, no, it's not a state, although it likes to think it the is. The Commonwealth of Boston? The Commonwealth. Commonwealth <laughs> of Massachusetts. So Massachusetts at that point, the only place that you could do COVID testing was at the public health lab for the state. And they had the capacity at that time to do 50 tests a day, five zero. Five zero, five zero tests a day. And so that's all that the state could do was 50 tests a day. And so even though we knew that there was like almost assuredly more cases that we just weren't capturing, you just couldn't test for it. Like there, there just wasn't the capacity to do that. So we spent like all of February just sort of sitting there waiting. <laughs> knowing that there were probably cases yeah, and then everything sort of you know kicked off in March and just on a personal level I spent three months in our city's uh, medical intelligence center which is like the emergency operations center for the city of Boston that coordinates medical emergencies and public health emergencies wow just doing a lot of yeah all of the things <laughs> so it was I you know I think in at that point the main concerns were trying to increase testing capacity to make sure that the hospitals weren't being overwhelmed to try to monitor ICU capacity to try oh my gosh the supply chain issues that we were all having at that time just trying masks to get people and masks everything. and N95 yeah. I remember having like frantic calls with people from MIT being like can you 3D print us like face shields I know providers and like EMS providers who literally just sat in rooms with like glue guns and like plastic sheeting and plastic uh like clear plastic and just like made face shields um because there was just no capacity anyway so yeah all of that you know was sort of like the behind the scenes stuff but the people that we were caring about right were the people who were the most vulnerable and the people who which is term i actually hate um it's calling somebody vulnerable because nobody wants to be Told yeah. that they're vulnerable but you know the high priority of the populations and and the people who don't necessarily have easy access to care or wouldn't necessarily opt into care so people particularly who are unhoused or people who are living in like unstable housing situations what do you do with that how do you isolate or 
quarantine in your house if you're living with eight people or if you're living on the street or you know if you're couch surfing someplace what do you do and how do you do that um if you don't want them to be taking up beds in a hospital they have to go someplace so if you have somebody who like needs to go someplace can they go to a hotel room well a lot of hotels wouldn't take people things like that anyway so lots and lots of stories about just trying to trying to navigate all of that but also i think you know going back to health equity is just in this country i think that we saw once again that our covid response was just continued to be incredibly inequitable despite the fact that like we were aware that that was largely going to be a case that people were going to be left out and things like that and trying to mitigate it but it was just you know i think we're two years into this and we can see that there were some gaps. I remember writing about migration at the beginning of COVID and, and having to really check my privilege that I was writing about migration while I sat at home and worked from home Yeah, yeah. when, you know, so many people on the move don't have that privilege. So, 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 you know, I wanted to talk about COVID, not just because you're here with me, but because I get this sense, and that's a scientific term that we we're like moving into a different phase of, of how we think about this. And I don't know, I don't have the skills with which to analyze whether that sense and this new phase that we're in is based on any sort of science or just based on the fact that everybody's fed up. Like Omicron peaked in the United States in mid-January and I looked it up. The seven-day average in mid-January was over 800,000 cases per day. That was Omicron, not as many people sort of, you know, having severe cases. But still, if you look at the, you know, Google COVID cases US, like the spike was like legit. It was huge. And now we're, so that was 800,000 cases uh, as a seven day average per day. Uh, And now that seven day average is around 70,000 cases per day, uh, which is sort of where we were around the time that people were getting vaxxed um, this time last year. So, you know, I, I've, I got an email saying that my kid in DC doesn't have to, who's in DC public schools, doesn't have to wear a mask outside. They still have to wear a mask inside. I got some contentious. angry text messages from other DC parents about that being like, why? I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't anymore. What were they angry about? Uh, that there was no warning that they had to, that they, that it just happened on that day. And that they weren't given the opportunity to either push back or to uh, tell their kids themselves. Oh, yeah. I told our so we have an afternoon <laughs> nanny. And like, as soon as I got the email, I texted the afternoon nanny. I was like, you know, it wasn't safe yesterday, but it's safe today. So you can <laughs> you can tell Isla that she could take her mask off at the park. Um, <laughs> so so where are we right now? I think that we have reached a point where we've been doing this now for two years. That's really depressing to look at the calendar and realize it's March, 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, but like almost to the day, I think of when most people would consider like the U S really having kicked off is that first week, second week in March, 2020. So we've been doing this for two years. We sort of have recognized some trends that are there. Vaccines are a huge tool in our toolkit, which have like really changed the game, I think quite a lot. And also like it's, we know a little bit more about what we are dealing with. So it's no longer this case where, you know, when we were sitting in March, 2020, we were looking at these ICU numbers going up and just wondering, 
how bad is it going to get? I mean, we, we set up, Samaritan's Purse set up a field hospital in Central Park. That's Do you wild. remember that? They set up yes. a field hospital. This is, this is something that we did in Ebola. Like we set up field hospitals places because things were so overwhelmed. And I think one of the things that you can look at now is that we had an absolutely huge wave for Omicron in December, which like, to be honest, like I, I was shocked at the numbers that were coming through the, like, I, I thought that I had reached two years into this and that I couldn't be surprised anymore. And one of the jurisdictions that we were working with, like they were, they were getting test positivity rates of like 55% for, yeah. for a city of like 300,000 people. Like that's insane. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we saw these crazy high case numbers, but then we didn't see the same thing happen with our ICUs and with the hospitals just overall is that we didn't, you know, it, it's a little bit difficult because hospitalizations and deaths are lagging indicators, which I'm sure everybody knows because now everybody has an epidemiology degree from Twitter. <laughs> no, no, no. They've all moved on to Ukraine now. That's true. That's true. So now it's, that's just their minor. Is their <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, it's, they're lagging indicators. And so when we saw these huge spikes, one of the good things, right, for us in the U.S. is that we we didn't get hit first, so we were able to look at other countries like Israel and U.K. and South Africa and, and see that their spikes didn't correlate to hospitalization rates really spiking as dramatically as they could have. And so we could look for things like immune evasion and we could look for things like, you know, just, just how it was reacting overall. Yeah, we just didn't see that spike, which is great because that means that A, the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to be doing and that this variant has mutated into something that's more transmissible, but probably not as deadly, hopefully. Um, And to be able to say, we don't have to look at things sort of the way that we did back in March, 2020, because the situation's not the same. Um, Anybody who is vaccinated, anybody who's boosted, is faring a lot better than they would have a year ago, you know, if they weren't boosted and so, or if they weren't vaccinated at all. And I think even the people who are still getting sick, even if they are immunocompromised, those are the people that we're still the most worried about is people who are at higher risk. So immunocompromised, people who are older, comorbidities, things like that. But even that, those numbers have fallen pretty dramatically. Mm. So I think at this point now, you know, the, the tricky part is in public health, public health and medicine different because, differ because public health looks at population level health. It doesn't mm. look at the individual. Medicine looks at the individual. And so while we do care about the individuals who are makeup population, obviously, it's not the same as, again, it was in March 2020, when like every single person who was a case potentially impacted the wider population as a whole. Now we're starting to be able to balance that a little bit more and say, people get sick with things all the time, but we have to be able to manage that in some way that is sustainable. So, you know, I think- So is that where we are? Are are we in this sort of manage something that's going to be with us for a while phase? I think that the the term that like my coworkers and I've been sort of throwing around is persistent pandemic. And so I think that this is sort of where we're- That's depressing. (laughs) I mean, it is, but also it isn't, right? Like we're not getting to a point where- there's very few diseases in the world that we're ever going to eradicate. Smallpox was like a, an amazing feat of humankind, but there's 
pretty much nothing else that we have done that with. Like even polio, we have not been able to do that with even guinea worm. Which if I was going to say, what's the little white worm that yeah. comes out of your toes in South Sudan? There's, yeah. I, there, we don't have enough time to go into it, but man, people should look up guinea worm. It's fascinating. Or just like email me and I'll <laughs> go on a rant for like 20 minutes about how cool it is. But like we haven't even gotten there with guinea worm, with like a couple of other things that the world is trying to eradicate. And those are in things that are a lot easier to kind of clamp down on. COVID is not that, you know, there's too much pre-symptomatic transmission, asymptomatic transmission. It's a respiratory disease. Like it's just, it's just not something that we're ever going to eradicate, but it is something that we can probably manage and live with. One of the public health folks that I was listening to recently was talking about like, you know, and, and most people, by the time that they get to the age of 50, they've had like five or 10 bouts of the flu, even if it's not the same flu, like their body has sort of learned how to deal with that. We're only two years into this with COVID. So like within vaccines and like natural infection, our bodies still haven't necessarily figured out how to live with that. But like, at some point, probably we will get there, right? Like our, our bodies will adapt. There are other coronaviruses that we get as human beings just in general, and our, our bodies learn how to deal with that. And they also fight them off and things like that. So I think right now what we're trying to figure out is how do we make that transition from like emergency, we need to protect our hospitals, we need to protect high risk folks to we need to still do that. But also we need to do things that allow us to like live life and not necessarily feel like we're all sort of sheltered underground for the foreseeable future, because that just leads to people getting angry and feeling like they're being oppressed, which they're not, but that's a different rant. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's this balance of how do we transition from this emergency response into something that's long-term and sustainable. And to be honest, that can be sustained by our existing public health infrastructure in the country, which is run by local public health departments. Um, and most local public health departments don't have massive contact tracing workforces. They don't necessarily have like genomic sequencing that they can do all these things in. So how do we transition to something that is much more manageable and realistic? And that's what you think sort of the public health community and maybe even some in the medicinal medicine community are thinking about? Yeah, I think a lot of folks are, are that is sort of top of the mind right now is, is how do we get to that point? To be honest, I think that we were getting there pre-Omicron and then things just got more delayed because everybody had to drop everything and deal with this incredible surge that was just not really, not really anticipated at the level that it is. But that being said, you know, I think we've now seen that at least in northern parts of the U.S. particularly, we've had two winters in a row where we've had pretty serious COVID spikes at the end of the year. Right. There's a good chance we'll probably get that again next year. How do we manage that in a way that doesn't stop everything, that doesn't right. stop people from seeing loved ones at Christmas or delay schools from starting for three weeks, giving parents like, you know, no warning and then having to scramble to find childcare, which again is a burden that falls most disproportionately on people who can't afford to do that. You know, so I think that if we're thinking through what does this look like, not just for the next month, but for the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years, and thinking through how do we need to adapt to that? What indicators do we need to be looking at to make sure that we're sort of tracking things in advance that if things do start to spike again, we can really try to like clamp down on that. 
Um, you know, I think those conversations are ongoing now. And to a slight extent, the the guidance that CDC just released recently about like their masking policies and things like that is trying to go in that direction. Uh, I think there's been some a lot of very good criticism of it, but like I, I do understand sort of where it comes from is because they're looking at how do we how do we try to make this something that is sustainable and something that's also locally adaptable by states and local jurisdictions who need to do that because what policy works in Topeka, Kansas is probably going to look very different than what works in like Bangor, Maine to what works in Montgomery to what works in like farmland in Ohio. No, I think that's uh, incredibly well said. Uh, I was also thinking about your, your point about the oppression of masking and whatnot. And I was uh, this is not my spicy nugget, but one of my spicy nugget contenders this week was there was this video. And quite honestly, I don't even know if it was like misinformation, you know, like a, it wasn't verified as far as I can tell. And and quite frankly, I didn't care because it was this video of this like old Ukrainian woman who had a bag of like sesame seeds or like something. It was like she had a bag of like nuts or seeds or something. And she was just individually taking them out of the bag and throwing them in the face of a Russian soldier. (laughs) And and, and as as I was watching this, I kept thinking like, yes, tell me about how your mask in the grocery store is oppressing you. Tell me more. (laughs) That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, I may have to link that video. (laughs) Please Uh, do, because I want to see it. (laughs) I may check to see if it's uh, actually verified at that point. Um, (laughs) But thanks, thanks, Aaron. That was really great. So let's let's get on to some spicy nuggets. So, spicy nugget. What is your spicy nugget, Aaron? Okay. So I was searching around. This is a really sad statement of my life. Is that I was seriously sitting like in my car this morning as I was driving home, being like, I don't know anything that's not like covid or ukraine or like depressing (laughs) news that's going on other than like random things that happen in the mountains because that's where i spend all my free time these days it's just like disappearing into into mountains in new hampshire and then i remembered that i saw this story recently about this guy whose name is simon beck who walks for hours in like these vast untouched snow snow plains I suppose but Mm. I think I think he does this mostly in the Alps because I've actually seen it and he makes these like incredible wintry snow art landscapes that are kind of like Mandela's I'm going to send you a link which I know is not going to be great for your viewers but you can look at it (laughs) they're these massive just yeah like mandalas that basically he he like creates these in, like very intricate geometric shapes and then just walks them to create these incredible aerial visuals it's like crop circles but in the snow but in the snow right it's amazing they're incredible anyways it just brings me a lot of joy to know that there is somebody in the world who spends like hours and days planning these like really intricate walks that then also take wow. him like hours and days that are very, very beautiful and that then disappear. <laughs> yeah, just, there is some, there's something beautiful. really beautiful about that. There's It reminds me of those monks that do like incredibly intricate things with like sand. The mandalas, yeah. 
Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, it's a mandala. I should sure. know what that maybe, is. Maybe I'm saying it wrong, but I think it is. Yeah. You're much more, I keep thinking Mancala, um, which is not the right thing, but you're much more cultured than I am. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely link that uh, in, in the show notes. So, if, if anybody needs joy, that's all I want is just look at snow art. <laughs> it's what we're here for, News and Bruce. All the joy. Yeah. So I'm actually going to share my screen. Okay, I'm excited for this. All right, can you see my screen here? Yep. Okay, so have you seen this video? Nope. Okay, so this is uh, Snake Island, which is in the Black Sea. And if you start it, it says this is a Russian warship. It's basically like this: these Russians that are trying to like attack this island and they're like you must go do you hear me right do you copy and then the ukrainians are like this is it should i tell him to go fuck himself just in case and he turns up the volume and he goes russian warship go fuck yourself (laughs) which is just perfect (laughs) it's so this I, I I'm surprised actually that you didn't see it. Maybe it's I first saw it on Ian Bremmer's Twitter because it went totally viral. But it's uh, it's very much like nerd war Twitter, I think. Yeah. But the so the story is that there were these 13 Ukrainian soldiers that were like guarding this island, and it, it literally like looks like an island that's off like the Scottish Isles. It has like three houses on it. It's yeah. like nothing. So the the story was in, that initially came out was like you know, after they said this, uh, and CNN was so funny, they were walking around this, they were like, after they told them to go someplace, that's how CNN was describing what the the Ukrainians said. The the initial reports were like, okay, and then they all died. And it was really tragic. And Zelensky, like via, you know, Twitter selfie video, posthumously awarded them like the Medal of Honor or something. Well, turns out they're actually alive. And they're like, they were captured by the Russians and there's some sort of harrowing story, but they're, but they're apparently all alive, uh, which is, I think the, the good news part of this, but just like the meme to end all memes. <laughs> just go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's really good. I feel like that should be dubbed in some sort of like really deep Bostonian accent. Yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> which is a sign that I've been in Boston too long, I should say. Well, Aaron Polish, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fun. It's great to see you. We should catch up like normally when it's not being recorded. Yeah. Thank you again. Yeah. All right. See you next time. See you next time. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabake. Our producer is Alana Nevins. Our guest today was Aaron Polish. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, March 1, 2022 at 8 p.m. Eastern. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.